Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Independence Coronavirus Podcast. I'm David Marley, Deputy Editor at The Independent. This podcast is about getting behind the headlines with some of our team drilling down into the issues that are affecting people's lives as we try to navigate our way through these unprecedented times. As we are only too well aware, the UK, where I'm recording from, and other rich Western countries with highly sophisticated healthcare systems are struggling to cope with the pandemic. So what is the situation in the Middle East? Is a region already devastated by years of war and with millions of displaced people living in camps and lacking access to even basic healthcare able to fight back against this new crisis. To discuss this, I'm talking today to Belle True, the Independence Middle East correspondent who is joining us from Lebanon's capital, Beirut. Belle was previously based in Jerusalem for the Independence and has travelled and reported extensively from the region. Hi, Belle. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Um, you moved to Beirut actually only a matter of weeks ago, right in the middle uh, of the pandemic as it was unfolding. Can you tell us a little bit about how that affected your your move there and how the country is now that you're there and how it's coping. Well, yeah, absolutely. It felt a little bit apocalyptic, actually, as we were doing this cross-country move right in the middle of the pandemic, just as borders were closing, as flights were being cancelled, as lockdowns were being unrolled basically across the region. So I ended up getting one of the last flights into Lebanon from Jordan, uh, which had basically put a ban on travel to Lebanon. And actually, whilst I was in the air, they, uh, the Lebanese authorities actually put on restrictions on people coming from the UK. So there was a, there was a bit of confusion at the airport because they weren't sure whether that meant people who were actually British or people who had physically arrived from the UK. And when I was met at the airport, there were you know, guys in full hazmat suits with temperature checking devices, you know, getting very nervous about anyone coming in. And actually, pretty much the next day, Lebanon put down a full lockdown, which is a little bit harder than the UK's lockdown. We're not permitted to exercise outside. We are allowed to go to grocery shops and pharmacies, and there is an evening curfew. The sort of security forces are patrolling the streets. They, at one point, had helicopters in the sky with the the security forces basically putting out messages uh, by microphone saying they had to stay inside. So these kind of voices came from the clouds like gods telling you to stay within your own homes. Because Lebanon, like many countries in the Middle East, is really on the brink. Uh, it was actually experiencing almost an unprecedented financial crisis and a revolution before the coronavirus hit. So, you know, the World Bank was already predicting there would be 40% of the population below the poverty line before we had this unprecedented world event. And of course, just like other parts of the world, businesses have been hit. People are sitting at home, unable to work. And that's going to cause a massive problem to the economy, which is already massively stressed. So uh, really here, it's, 
it really feels like, I mean, people have been quite calm. We haven't had the sort of panic buying of the shops like I've seen in the UK. You know, friends and family were sending me photos of empty uh, supermarket aisles. We haven't had that here because I think people have lived through several wars, you know, civil wars. So they know that you don't panic, but at the same time, we are going to get to the point where people cannot feed themselves. And that is also playing out in the, in the, in the health crisis as well. We've got just over 580 infected people. That's the official count. Again, we haven't got the same amount of testing as in, in Europe and 19 deaths. And the problem is, is that they, they are responding. They put this full lockdown. They've you know, got a specific hospitals are responding to the crisis, uh, but they, they can't scale up. Uh, if there is an exponential surge in, in numbers of cases, I've been speaking to the head of the um, ICU unit at uh, the Rafiq Khalidi University Hospital, which is the main coronavirus hospital. They said that, that the healthcare system will collapse um, so they, because they can't scale up. So they, they, they were really quick to impose that lockdown. If we think about how it's, um, how it's been played out in, in the UK or in other, in other European countries, we are obviously at a much more advanced stage. You say only 19, 19 deaths so far. But basically, their fear of being not being able to cope if things if things progress has has led to that that situation. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the government doesn't really have any money at all, um, and you know there were already a massive dollar shortage, which massively impacts imports of things like medical supplies. But at the same time, Lebanon is also host to a massive refugee population. In fact, it's got the highest number of refugees per capita in the world. One in four people in Lebanon is a refugee. Obviously, social distancing regulations um, cannot be enforced in a, in a refugee camp when you're living in a tent that's 60 centimeters from the next tent where you don't have enough water to, to, to wash your hands. Um, so they've really realized that very early on and so put down this big lockdown. And I actually went to the ICU units a few days ago and you know, it seemed pretty calm in there, but they, they, was, they were very worried. I would even use the word scared uh, because the moment they're at 50% capacity of what they have, but once, they, once you start seeing this horrible exponential, you know, curve up that we've seen across Europe, they won't be able to handle it. Um, the government, the main government hospital that is that's manning this COVID crisis is owed an awful lot of money from the government for last year's payments. And now they're basically running off donations. So they've got it under control for the moment, but the biggest fear is if we see this sudden surge in cases, they won't be able to handle it. So what's their situation in terms of access to ventilators and, and intensive care beds, which are the kind of two big things that, that people keep talking about uh, here? What's the situation there with that? Well, I sat with the health minister, um, I think it was two days ago now, and he told me they have 1,250 ventilators across the entire country, but that's for all illnesses. Um, and they only have 700 ICU beds prepped for the coronavirus patients. So that obviously isn't enough to deal with a massive outbreak. Um, Hezbollah, which is a very powerful force here, have got, seems to have at least access to their own supply of ventilators um, and, and supplies generally. So I went to go and visit some of their hospitals that they're setting up to help people as well. Um, so that, that is an additional kind of support system. But basically, from across you know, the board, from the health minister, from the head of the ICU, one of the main coronavirus hospitals, the message has been like the lockdown is basically what is holding back um, this potentially insane catastrophe, particularly because of the, uh, the refugee population and the fact that there was already so much social unrest from the financial crisis before uh, the coronavirus entered the country. And the fact that you've been to the main hospital there that's set up to deal with the crisis, what were the doctors there saying to you? Were they giving you kind of any kind of message that, that, that they want to get out into the wider world? What, what were their thoughts? 
I mean, for a start, they just seemed exhausted, um, really, really tired. Um, when I was speaking to the head of the nursing department, she said that there are nurses who are basically living in the hospital because they're working sometimes 24 hours a day. Um, so they haven't seen their families, you know, for a month. So we think about our lockdown as being difficult because we're locked up with our, maybe on our own, but sometimes with our loved ones, you know, these, these nurses are basically in dorms in the hospitals. Um, what they basically said to me was that they needed everyone to follow the, the lockdown. That was the main, you know, that that was the main thing that was going to hold back this from turning into a real um, catastrophe. And I mean, one of the doctors actually used the sort of phrase, he said it was like we're in a war. So they very much see themselves on the front line of a conflict here, battling an invisible enemy. And that's not likely to be, that's not a light thing for them to say. People here have literally been through a war, um, if not wars. So for them, they're really hunkering down and seeing this as something as significant as a civil war a few years ago. I think um, we have some audio of your trip to the hospital, which we can listen to now. Here, okay, it's a disaster for Lebanon. You will not support this kind of, you cannot support. In Lebanon, you have maximum 600 uh, respirators. You don't have enough respirator for the whole yes country. So maybe you can accept 600 patients. And after, what can you do? Nothing. So the, the patient will die because they don't have enough, enough care. So that's why my concern, this exponential growth in cases, what is very dangerous. You mentioned before, Bell, about the high um, population of refugees in Lebanon. One in four people is a refugee. Many people living in camps or in other, um, in other situations where, which, does not, which doesn't give them access to the healthcare and the, the, the sophisticated hospitals that we're used to in the UK. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that situation and how, what the, what the fears are around the refugee camps and how quickly coronavirus could spread if it took a hold there? Well, absolutely. This is the, one of the main concerns here in Lebanon um, is that it does have this unusually large refugee population in comparison to the sort of population of, of, of Lebanese citizens. There are an estimated 1.5 million Syrian refugees in Lebanon, but only 40, but sorry, 40 percent of them are not registered with the United Nations. And so they're not eligible for cash assistance, food parcels um, or really the sort of medical help. Um, and that is a concern, obviously, because of these sort of unregistered uh, refugees, many of them who are literally living in tents, you know, will be the most vulnerable uh, to this virus. Now, um, we also have an additional UN registered 470,000 Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, including 30,000 Palestinian refugees who fled uh, from Syria. So they're twice refugees. Um, they have in the past faced work permit and healthcare restrictions, which has made them vulnerable too, because... Um, that means that they don't have the kind of cash reserves to be able to get through this crisis. A lot of them are day-to-day -day workers, you know, so now they're on super lockdowns in the, in the refugee camps, uh, which means that they will be vulnerable in terms of not having access to food um, and also, of course, the coronavirus. I've spoken to representatives from the UNHCR, which is the UN's um, refugee agency, and also uh, UNRWA, which is the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency, and they assured me that they have that they will pay for treatment and they were looking for additional funds um, to help build sort of isolation centers, but it's unclear what will happen to those who are unregistered. And UNRWA, so that's the, Palestinian, the United Nations Palestinian Refugee Agency, is actually facing its worst like, financial funding crisis in, in its history. So it's due to run out of all its money by May if they don't get additional donations quickly. So that will obviously impact their ability to be able to support 
Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, and of course support Palestinian refugees everywhere, including in, in Gaza, in the West Bank, um, in, you know, in other parts of, of the world. So really we have a double sort of crisis here in the sense that the refugees are living in camps where they cannot self-isolate, um, where it's very hard for them to quarantine. At the same time, they don't have access to, 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 to money to be able to, to feed themselves um, and look after themselves during this crisis. And the aid agencies themselves are suffering as well from funding problem, which makes the, the you know, ability to be able to respond and look after these, these vulnerable refugees even harder. So it's, it's very, very tricky uh, right now here. And you were able to speak um, to some Syrian and Palestinian families who are living in, in refugee camps now in, in Lebanon. What, what did they say? They must be, they must be very scared about, about the, the risks that they're facing. Yeah, um, we, I mean, we didn't go to the camps as face-to-face because we were concerned about bringing the virus with us. You know, you don't want to be patient zero in an outbreak of coronavirus in a, in a Syrian refugee camp. So they asked if they could film some of their... Um, living conditions to be able to show to show us and show the world how difficult it was for them to be able to follow these regulations that we ourselves are finding hard living in, in nice flats in, in London, for example. So, you know, when I was sitting there talking to them on WhatsApp, they were saying, you know, they don't have enough access to water to be able to do all the hand washing requirements or disinfecting requirements. The tents are 60 centimetres away from each other, which is well below the two metre requirements for social distancing. You have families that are living five, six people to one tent. How can you possibly isolate a single person? Um, they are daily workers, so very often they, you know, now with the lockdown, they can't get they can't get their work. Um, they're relying on food parcels, uh, which they say are drying up um, because I think you know funding problems. They also have much harsher curfews and lockdowns than the rest of the sort of population in Lebanon. So very often in some camps in some areas, they, you know, they're only permitted, specific people are only permitted to leave the camp between 9am and 1pm every day, which isn't a very large window. So all of these things are kind of adding to this crisis for the refugee population. And they basically just said to me that they, they were desperate. They're, they're trying to, you know, to support each other, but it's incredibly hard when you're living in these conditions. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're talking about people you've spoken to in Lebanon, but of course there are more camps of, uh, in northern Syria where lots of internally displaced people are also living. 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, you know, I've been speaking to medics and health officials and people um, across the Middle East region um, from a lot of the countries that are particularly ravished by war and of course Syria is on the top of their minds. Um, so far, the only recorded cases they've had in Syria, 19 infected and two dead, but the UN has said um, that this really is the tip of the iceberg. There just simply hasn't been enough testing. I was speaking, first of all, to people in northwestern um, Syria, which is home to four million people, um, including a million of which were internally displaced just in the last, um, uh, basically, offensive by the regime on this opposition hold area. Um, many of the civilians are living in overcrowded and unhygienic camps. Um, and there, in fact, Refugees International told me that they believe at least three people in Idlib may have died showing signs of COVID-19, suggesting that there is a much larger outbreak than we know about. Um, so their main issue, again, is the lack of, of supplies. So in, in northwest Syria, which is basically the last opposition sort of uh, pocket in the country, in, in the western Aleppo region, they said they only have about 150 ventilators for 4 million people and just over 200 ICU beds. Um, in, in Idlib, um, they, you know, I was talking to one doctor who said to me they have oxygen tanks and painkillers and that's all they have to fight the coronavirus when it gets there. Um, you have a, you know, an even worse problem actually in the northeast of the country, in the Kurdish-held areas. So I was speaking to the health officials there. They said they had just 12 ventilators for millions of people there. They have no testing kits. And the main UN aid board, border crossing was actually closed from, a, a, from the beginning of the year. So it's very hard for them to get additional supplies in. So they put down a pretty strict uh, lockdown. Now, of course, in northeast Syria, you also have the uh, camps for uh, supporters of the so-called Islamic State and their family members, as well as the prisons holding um, approximately 10,000 um, suspected uh, ISIS fighters. There's a big concern about an outbreak happening there and whether they would have the security capacity to be able to you know, keep people with, you know, from ISIS, keep them within the camps or keep them within the prisons. So, you know, we're looking at kind of a multi-headed crisis happening across, across Syria where there is limited testing, where again, there's limited access to supplies. There are millions of um, people who are in camps and um, basically they have very limited access to any form of healthcare. Is there any sense that, given the, the gravity of the situation, that there could be some kind of international cooperation to allow aid to get back in and just to kind of deal with this situation before dealing with all the other uh, myriad issues that are, that are still there? Well, there is, for example, in the northwest of the country, a ceasefire holding at the moment. Um, it's a Turkey and Russia broken ceasefire, uh, which has halted the, the, the sort of offensive that was raging at the end of last year, which caused this massive displacement. In the northeast, I know um, that the Kurdish officials have been negotiating with the World Health Organization to try and open up aid crossings and get testings in. I understand that there is a, a, um, they are hoping to be able to create a, a lab um, in Hasaka City to try and um, increase testing for people in, or even stop testing for people in northeast Syria. Um, there are other areas which you know we don't really have that much information from. So the regime-held areas, a lot of those areas were really heavily hit during the fighting, and because they were former opposition strongholds, that rebuilding hasn't happened, and people don't have that much access to it. So there is concerns also even within the regime-held areas that there will be you know inability to be able to do proper testing or self-isolation or treatment. So quite a lot of Syria really just feels like a black hole in terms of the coronavirus. Um, 
And really, it just feels like, you know, one case could multiply exponentially very quickly. Mm. Um, as you say, I mean, when we think about conflict there, we're, we're um, serious foremost in our mind. But obviously, there's been a long war running in Yemen, which is a very serious situation. I understand that um, from a piece you wrote that um, Saudi Arabia has caused uh, called a temporary ceasefire. But what's the situation there as they try to get to grips with it? Well, there is this temporary ceasefire that was announced basically at midnight, sort of Wednesday night, Thursday morning by the Saudi Arabia-led coalition, um, that they would have a two-week kind of halt of hostilities in line with what the UN has been asking for. So the United Nations basically put out a call for kind of worldwide global ceasefire in this extraordinary pandemic. But the problem is, is that while that will help, because active fighting has raged over the last 10 days, was I think 270 people killed um, in, in quite an sort of intense um, fighting between the Saudi-led coalition and the Iran-backed Houthi rebels. Um, the problem is that the damage has already been done. Um, half the hospitals are not functioning in Yemen. Um, an estimated 80% of the population or 24 million people already require some form of humanitarian assistance to survive. It's been described by the United Nations as the world's largest humanitarian crisis in terms of numbers. Two thirds of the country are one step away from famine. Um, and Oxfam basically said last week that there, there's about 50 cases of cholera every hour. Um, now cholera should be a disease that's fairly easily treatable, but in these circumstances it has spread like wildfire. We had basically the largest outbreak or the worst outbreak of cholera um, in modern history, I believe, in Yemen over the last uh, few years. So you can imagine if you were to put coronavirus into that environment, it's going to be you know, hellish. And I was speaking to doctors who've been trying to fight famine and cholera for the last few years about what they thought, and they told me that, um, this is to quote one doctor, we have no place for isolation and quarantine. People can barely afford to eat as it stands. Whole swathes of areas do not have access to clean water. If we get a single case of COVID-19 here, it will become an epidemic immediately. So that is why we are seeing this ceasefire. But like I said, with a decimated healthcare service, with you know, you know, all the functioning, all the hospitals that are functioning are barely functioning, with a mass exodus of um, healthcare um, like medics and doctors from the country, it's very hard to see how they could possibly respond to the coronavirus um, outbreak if it were to happen. Are you, are you hopeful that that ceasefire can last? I mean, arguably, Saudi Arabia have been perhaps looking for a way out of that war for a while. It's gone on much, much longer than they thought it would do when it, when it started. Do you think this, if, if there's any hint of a silver lining, maybe do, that it helps bring this, this conflict to an end? I mean, that would be, you know, an ideal silver lining. I think that's what some people are hoping for across the Middle East, actually, and probably the world, that this, you know, this mass, global uh, crisis will be able to stop conflicts in various different places. I mean, my fear is that we've seen peace talks and ceasefires happen repeatedly in the five-year war in Yemen, and they've broken down eventually over various different issues. So we'll have to see, at least here, you know, Saudi is battling its own coronavirus outbreak. Iran actually is, um, which, which backs the Houthi rebels in Yemen, they've basically got the worst outbreak in the Middle East. So they probably aren't in the mood to continue complicated uh, conflicts. And I think, to be honest, the Houthis, um, in fact, all sides, including the recognised government in Yemen, will need every ounce of help they can possibly get. And so, you know, continuing to fight bombing hospitals, civilian infrastructure, water infrastructure is the opposite way of being able to fight this virus. So it could, it could mean that people are forced to get to the negotiating table and actually 
pull out a peace deal that lasts longer than just a few weeks. Well, let's let's hope that that, that comes to pass. Um, as we look to getting out of um, lockdown here and in other countries, we're we're turning our attention to what governments might do to help uh, track the spread of the disease and um, various apps and technology to keep a keep a close eye on how the disease is spreading. Um, what's happening with that in the Middle East region, Bell? I mean, we have we know that there are some authoritarian leaders there. Are they using this kind of technology in a way that we might find somewhat disturbing? Well, this is absolutely one of the sort of hot topics of debate at the moment. So we've seen, you know, places like China obviously do quite a lot of surveillance of their citizens, you know, tracking people's movements through apps to literally, literally in a sort of, you know, traffic light system where, you know, if, you, if you're green, you're good, you're good to move around um, because they're tracking all the different cases. Now, this has happened. Um, in the Middle East, we've seen this play out um, in Iran. They've been trying to track people who, who are diagnosed with the with the virus and who they came into interaction with. Probably uh, the, the one that's hit the headlines most has been Israel. So um, Israel put through sort of extraordinary uh, permission for their domestic intelligence um, agency, uh, the Shin Bet, to basically track people's phones who um, have the coronavirus and those who uh, they've come into contact with to kind of map out the spread of the disease. Recently, um, local media was reporting that the Defence Minister, Natalie Bennett, was actually wanting to um, enlist the support of controversial Israeli spy firm, uh, spyware firm called NSO. Now, NSO is infamous um, for allegedly hacking WhatsApp um, and also activists' phones. Uh, so local media is saying that the Israeli Defence Ministry is actually looking to them to create software to be able to basically track people's uh, movements through their mobile phones. I spoke to NSO actually a few weeks ago, um, who told me they were building software to track mobile phone data, basically take mobile, mobile phone data and kind of put it in a kind of usable dashboard. But they said this wasn't necessarily kind of hacking the phone. It would be data that would be given to them to then process. Mm -hmm. But certainly it's worrying a lot of people that this will be used as a way to basically survey people, follow people around, in particular the Palestinians um, and, and anyone who's regarded to be a dissident. Um, and, and so this sort of you know, tracking of people is happening in other different ways um, across, the, across the region. So, I mean, Jordan's um, unrolled kind of extraordinary emergency legislation which awards the authorities sweeping powers so they put down a really intense lockdown at one point lockdown was so intense you couldn't even go to the supermarket uh, and they put they sort of have been in, um, intermittently putting that lockdown on and off but they have been seizing cars of violators and basically you know imposing heavy penalties on anyone who does uh, violate that lockdown Meanwhile, in Tunisia, the authorities have warned people that if, if they are infected by the coronavirus and break quarantine and they, the authorities find out about that, as particularly if they infect anyone, they could actually be prosecuted for manslaughter. So we're seeing the authorities across the region basically trying to track people either through, you know, um, mo mobile phones, uh, surveillance software, or literally in the streets, uh, relying on a network of, of basically people informing on their neighbours to try and find out who's breaking lockdown, who's breaking isolation, and who's moving where to map this virus and try and kind of stamp it out. But the downside of that, of course, is people's fear that there is an increased element of, of surveillance and, and government control. Which sounds very frightening. And we also know that some other countries have cracked down on other freedoms and kind of closer to home have expelled journalists who are reporting on it. 
uh, claims that um, their accurate reporting is exaggerating the, the scale of the crisis. Yeah, this is another concern is, is the sort of crackdown on press freedoms as governments are concerned about um, basically the situation being perceived as more grave than they believe it to be. So we've had a lot of accusations that Iraq, places like Iran and Egypt are not reporting their full um, infection rate and death toll. I will say that this is an issue across the world because it depends on what access you have to testing kits and how you roll out those kind of um, testing facilities. Uh, so it's not necessarily you know, restricted to the Middle East region. Um, but uh, basically in Egypt specifically, which is well known for um, its crackdown on, on press freedoms, actually expelled the Guardian correspondent, or at least forced the Guardian correspondent to have to leave after they revoked um, her press accreditation because she published an article where she cited um, a report um, that claimed that the number of cases in Egypt might be higher than the official toll. So, you know, and, and the Egyptians said this was spreading misinformation, so she, ha she had to leave. This was also reflected in behavior in Iraq, where Iraq suspended Reuters journalists for uh, doing the same. They, instead of citing a report, they spoke to two kind of unnamed officials who said that the true infection rate was much higher. So there's a sense from the region that governments um, are anxious that their line on what is happening is the line that is being reported by the um, journalists not necessarily any other maybe conflicting information well um bill thanks very much for all of that lots of fascinating insight into into what's happening in the middle east um and we look forward to continuing to read your reports over the coming weeks and months as as we kind of grapple with this with this unfolding pandemic um thank you, thank you to everyone for listening um if you're a new listener please subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify acast or wherever you listen, and do check out the other episodes already recorded in this series on everything from the economy to travel and on a lighter note, how to eat healthily while in lockdown. And if you have suggestions for things you'd like us to discuss, do get in touch on email at the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk or you can use the hashtag Indie Coronavirus Podcast. That's I-N-D-Y, Indie Coronavirus Podcast, and we'll see your post. You can read all about the unfolding pandemic on our website independent.co.uk and in our downloadable daily edition app there's also a new email newsletter you can sign up to if you want the latest news and advice delivered daily to your inbox thank you so much again for listening and see you next time hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.